It's uh, timely that we are moving into Romans 5 on a day where we may not be able to gather for worship for several weeks in the same way and share the same physical space, uh, to be reminded of God's great blessing, His promise of both a new covenant and new creation. We're moving from uh, the first four chapters where Paul really lays out God's right action, God's right, uh, that is, His right to act uh, in relationship to human brokenness and sin, and the right actions he's already taken. And we've already heard and begun to read about Christ's sufficient work on our behalf, that he is the sacrifice and he is the mercy seat and he reigns. And so now Paul moves from what has been a description of God's right and right action into the implications of a new covenant and new creation. What happens because of the good things that God has done, that we can rely on even in the midst of great difficulty and trial. Of course, we, we keep remembering that writing to this church in Rome is writing to a church that has been significantly disrupted uh, and is only now being able to come back together after the exile of its Jewish members. And how do they then join back together in fellowship, knowing the truth of who God is and therefore who they are? So let's put Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 in front of us. Uh, if you're following along in your scriptures, hear now God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were counseled to God by the death of his son, reconciled, excuse me, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you in a time of, again, uh, darkening clouds, of a need to be reminded of your power and your grace, Lord, to be encouraged in our heart and in our spirit that our God reigns and that we are one in you. Lord, we pray that as we delve into your word, that your spirit might be poured out into our hearts generously, encouraging us strengthening us, and Lord, giving us a hope that will not be put to shame. 
Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to look at this text really under the headings of New Covenant and New Creation. We're going to go back and forth throughout all 11 verses looking uh, at the way in which Paul weaves these themes in and through these 11 verses. But for many of us, this is a, a, a really challenging time to hear something like God tell us that we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces character and endurance, and that is what creates hope that does not disappoint. And yet it's true. It's true, and it is not ours to discern what suffering is sufficient or light or heavy. For each one, the Lord knows what our hearts can bear. And so we take this text as an encouragement wherever God finds you this morning, that you are in a new relationship with Him. And because you are in this covenant relationship with Him, you are a part of new creation. What a joy, and yet what a hard thing to see. Let's look at New Covenant, and hopefully it will refresh our eyes. There is peace through our Lord and King Jesus Christ, verses 4.24 through 5.1. Again, for Paul, of course, there isn't the break in the chapters the way they are for us. And so I want us to remember how his argument works. What he was talking about in verse 24, but for ours also it will be counted, that is, the faith in God, the faith that Abraham had in the, in the promises of God. But for us also it was written down. It was so important for us to remember last week that Abraham was not saved because of something he did, because of his righteous actions. It was that first step of faith. It was a belief in God's word even in the face of his own body and his wife's body and their age, that God would bless them and make them a mighty nation. It was a faith in what God could do. And it is that that then Paul takes into verses 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Peace with God. And that is not something that many religions support or encourage. You can certainly get to an agreement with your divine, but it's always what you do next that determines whether or not that God is continuing to be faithful to you. There's always that sense in religions that human beings create and whatever idol we create in our new and modern age, it only loves us as long as we serve it faithfully. And we live in fear of that which we love abandoning us. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's those things like the financial gain, our physical health or beauty, how we are uh, popular among those in our work or in our, in our circle of friends. All of those things which we have to maintenance if we're going to have a sense of peace. And how quickly when those things leave us, our health, or our finances, or our relationships, how quickly peace evaporates. And Paul is not suggesting here that somehow miraculously, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we will all float oblivious to the concerns about 
peace and war and strife. No, it is a statement of hope. A hope that will not disappoint, yet nonetheless it is a statement of faith that we have peace with God. It is the foundation. 5.6 tells us it's in our weaknesses that he makes peace with us. Not in our strength, not in our abundance, not in our generosity to God, not in our ability to do anything for him, but in our weakness. And 5.8 says that it is out of the very nature of his love. Peace comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, who was, for our sake, weak, that the strength of God's love and peace could be shown. It is a reminder that it is not the ways in which the world thinks that power comes, the way we're regularly tempted to believe the way security is arrived at, but it is the foolishness of the cross in a resurrected Savior that gives us peace. But that peace does not simply mean that we're allowed to live off and around and in the culture or in the world, grateful that somewhere in a distant uh, throne room, some benevolent king declared peace with us. No, it's access into the Holy of Holies. As we go into verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, it is access. It is relationship. It's not just a decree of a far-flung sovereign. It is an intimate invitation into relationship and access into the Holy of Holies. It's a reminder of uh, chapter 3, verses 24 through 26, where we talked about how Jesus' blood became that blood of the ox and the goat that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And that he himself is the mercy seat, and we are now in the Holy of Holies, all of us, with equal access into the place where our God reigns and sits. We stand there this morning, we sit there this morning at his feet. This access is given to us, verse 5 says, by the Holy Spirit. God actually indwelling you. You and I have become the temple of God. Because God dwells amongst his people. It is that place where heaven and earth meet. You are now a place where heaven and earth meet. We gather together now as a place where heaven and earth meet. God makes his dwelling among his people, and by the Spirit, God is here in and through this gathering. That is new covenant. That is the old covenant on steroids. That is the old covenant fulfilled. That is more than the prophets could have ever dreamed. They had the temple. They'd seen the tabernacle. They knew what it was like to rearrange their entire life in a circle around the place where God dwelt, where that tent was. The town, the city of Jerusalem with the high place where the temple was, arranged around a place where you could see the dwelling place and the Shekinah glory of God. And that now having transcended a single place and now in every place that God's people are gathered together because you and I are now places where heaven and earth meet because of the Spirit poured out in our hearts richly. And that, of course, for Paul, leads into the hope that will not disappoint. This is the hope in God's glory, not our own. 
Again, that is freeing. If peace is achieved by my efforts, and if access to God is achieved by my efforts and my purity, then my only hope is my own glory. Glory that God will recognize and then accept me into his presence. I have to be glorious. I have to be perfection. I have to be what I can never quite accomplish, which is why I don't feel peace and why I feel very distant from God. But with Paul, we are learning that in this new covenant, our hope is in the glory of God that we bathe in and rest in and get to delight in seeing the glory of the only one and true God, which then permeates us. I see the glory of God in you. You see the glory of God reflected by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. It happens as a community of faith. The glory of God is shown through his people. And we will not be put to shame. Verse 5. Through all the trials and travails, what I call the, uh, we have the ordo uh, salutis, the order of salvation in Romans 8. And I would say that in uh, Romans 5, you have the order of sanctification. There is a certain reality that as I learn to die to self, there is suffering. But that suffering creates in us something quite different than it would in the world. It is not there to crush, but to strip away those things which are actually holding us back and down. Carrying the weight of sin limits our mobility. It limits our ability to move forward. It wearies us beyond all imagining. But to have that burden cut off, I have a tendency to want to go pick it back up, and it is only in the grace of God where I am reminded that the difficulties produce the endurance, the endurance even to carry the lighter load of Christ, whose yoke is life and peace and joy, and that produces the hope because we've seen God work. We've seen God transformed. We've felt his ministry in and through us by the Holy Spirit and by you as his hands and as his feet and as his mouthpiece. Paul expects when he writes letters to churches to be an encouragement in their hope, even as he has to at times correct hope does not disappoint because hope is in Christ. Therefore, the peace is a hope that cannot be removed because it is secured by him. Access is not something that's dependent upon how many times I sinned today, but on the sure hope of Christ being my very access. And my hope is secured in the fact that I can see time and time again the glory of God reflected in his work. So the new covenant has these great anchors, these great three legs of a stool. And what do they hold us up to? Well, they hold us up to new creation because of peace, because of access, and because of the hope that comes from what Christ has done and the Holy Spirit living in us and the work of life being renewed. Because again, the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell dead things. 
We don't believe, we're not animists. We don't believe that God is in a rock. We don't believe that God is in every piece of creation. He indwells, he's present in all of creation, but he only indwells his living people. So we have the hope that the glory of God, that life itself will spread. Because I am in him, I have a changed view of what the world looks like. It changes my view of everything in creation. It's how Paul can now talk in verses 5 of this chapter that suffering can be transformed. Right before, we could say that suffering has no point or very little point. It is stoic, perhaps, that we could endure it. Or Epicurean, we try and flee from it. But because of who Jesus is. For Paul, suffering is transformed. And suffering in the world is seen as an indication of shame. If, the world, if your town was suffering, chances are there was sin in the camp. That was the pagan notion. That was the notion of all of the people around Paul. In fact, one of the reasons Christians were often persecuted, because they were thought to be atheists, because they wouldn't participate in the festivals of the local deities, and if they didn't and the harvest went bad, who do you blame? You blame the Christians because they didn't join in the festival. There were doubters. There were atheists in the town, and if the harvest goes bad, it was the Christians acting out of good faith, without good faith. But suffering for a Christian is not directly related to our failings. And it is without shame. It doesn't mean that our God has turned his back on us. It doesn't mean that there is something inherently sinful in who and what we are. That's already been addressed. Therefore, suffering is the refiner's fire. That doesn't make it pleasant, but it has a purpose. And the purpose is to transform us into Christ-likeness and the challenges that Christ's likeness in Philippians chapter 2 or in the Gospels seems to be one from a worldly perspective of humility and shame. Humility of serving people that in the end nailed him to a cross naked. For Paul, that becomes the glory of God because it's how life comes. The world wants to shame us in our service, in our brokenness, in our thoughts of others before ourselves. It seems impractical. We are going to suffer a period of not being able to meet together again. This cannot and should not be the new normal. And we pray that the times are cut short. But as we try and ease the rate of spread of the disease. Suffering for a season that perhaps fewer will suffer with the illness. It's without shame. We may be right or we may be wrong, but the heart and the desire is to bear that burden in Christ for the other. But it's not just suffering, it's also saved from wrath. Again, 
new creation breaks the power of what is so regularly described in Scripture as being the dog-eat-dog reality of the world. The strong devour the weak. The law of the jungle. The fear of judgment. Why did the crops not come? Well, because some of the Christians didn't show up to the festival, which makes the God angry, and therefore he wilted our crops. But in Christ, all of that wrath is turned on God himself. This is clearly, according to the Greek and what the scholars tell us, a very clear statement of the divinity of Christ in Paul's language. He is saying that the divine became flesh and bore that wrath for us. The only one who was sufficient, the only one who could bear the reality of sin and brokenness and defeat it. And therefore we are saved from wrath. That is a new way to interact in the world around us. It is a guard against using the tools of the world. And it is that reality that marked the church for its first 400 years. We didn't pick up a sword, even in the face of persecution. We did not return evil for evil. And in so doing, within the space of about 300 years, Christianity effectively took over the Roman Empire. Things became a little confusing after we became the official religion. And the sword and the scriptures became blurred way too often. But for Paul at this point, having no illusions of how power was going to be administered, is able to speak of the ending of wrath. How does that change our own view and our own hearts as we work on the horizontal, as we seek to be those who bring shalom in the midst of suffering and in the midst of many things that are unrighteous? How do we act as those who are freed from wrath, freed from the fear of that judgment? And then lastly, in verse 11, reconciliation. Again, it is a great opportunity to be reminded as we head into, Lord willing, just a couple of weeks of isolation. As we are uh, constrained to be perhaps around our families more than uh, is healthy. We are people of reconciliation. Because we understand suffering to be transformed in Christ, because we know that we are freed from wrath, we are people who can extend shalom and reconciliation. We can extend peace because we are people who have peace with God. And we can have hope for the power of reconciliation in a manner that the world can scarcely imagine. There is so much in these first 11 verses, so much to unpack, and I know that I am running over it quite quickly. But I want us to just take a couple of questions with us 
as we think about what it means to be members of a new covenant and those who have the opportunity to bring new creation. As we head into these next few weeks, how is it that the Spirit guides and encourages us? How will we react to suffering? Suffering caused by our actions or others? The fear and the dangers that lie ahead with people's economic status and their health? In the midst of perhaps fear of what happens in the turmoil of our nation politically, how will we react to suffering? I think it's something that we have to think about ahead of time. When it sneaks up on us, sometimes we uh, react more than we respond. As people saved from wrath, how do we seek relief for others? those who are enduring one level of wrath or disdain or dismissal or anger or frustration, how do we seek to be a safe place for those who feel the anger, the wrath, the judgment, whichever way that word comes to you. But if we are people of peace, how do we take advantage of being peace bringers in a time where wrath seems quite prevalent. And then finally, reconciliation. To be known in ever greater degrees. How are we known as a people? God says that the greatest thing we can be known as is those who bring peace. And peace only comes through reconciliation. Detente just means that the war is on hold. This isn't a cessation of hostilities until they flare up again. But the opportunity to bring shalom and reconciliation the way God has reconciled himself to us. Romans has an immediate context. How do Jewish and Gentile believers have a reconciled view of the church? of their community. The difficulties were real, as real as they are for us today. But the calling and the hope is still the same. That when we react in line with the gospel, seeing suffering for the other differently, being those who mediate and bring an end to wrath, that we bring reconciliation and new creation and that is good that lasts forever. Nothing good will be lost. Nothing good will be lost to the flame or the flood. But that all that is done for the glory of God and by His glory will remain. Even if the world at the moment sees it as shameful or weak or without hope. Because that's what they thought when they nailed him to the cross. They thought that shame and defeat by death and the hopelessness of the tomb had won again. 
And they were wrong. And they will be wrong again. Because the creation is being renewed by his spirit through the people, the temple, the living temple of God that goes out from this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful, that we might delight in the peace we have with you. Lord, give us the clarity of thought by your spirit and the encouraging words of our brothers and sisters that as you bring us through suffering, that you can and will transform us in ever greater degrees in your likeness, that we might have the endurance of our big brother, that we might have the hope and the eyes to see what he saw so that he could go through what he went through for us. Lord, thank you that anything we go through has the assurance that death has been defeated, that there is no shame for those who are in you as we do your work as we rest in you. And for all of it, Lord, may you get the glory and may we delight in seeing it come. In Christ's name, amen.